Well, my name is Reese. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. My wife Larissa and I have been attending Calvary. Uh, I've been on staff at Calvary since the infamous 2020. It's been a wild ride. And it's been really fun to get to know you and to build a relationship with you. And if we haven't met, I'd love to touch base with you after this service. Okay, well, I have a number for you this morning. 1,460. 1,460. It's how many dreams we have on average in a year. It's how many dreams I might have, you might have in a calendar year. Now, we uh, don't remember maybe like 99% of these dreams. Uh, but even out of the 99% that, for me, I don't remember, 99% of those are absolutely absurd. My dreams are ridiculous. They make no sense. One, uh, even like literally just a few weeks ago, I was in my dream at night running around in the age of dinosaurs dodging meteorites flying at me. And then another night, I was randomly spearfishing with Liam Neeson and Francis Chan. <laughs> I don't know if there's any dream interpreters here, but help, please. Um, but even out of like the, maybe all these crazy absurd dreams that I might have that I might remember, uh, occasionally, I might have one that sticks or that kind of strikes a deep chord in my life. Uh, I remember when I was 18 years old and I had just started following Jesus. I was just trying to figure out what relationship with Jesus looked like. And I was living in Hawaii at the time and I went to bed at night and I had this dream that went something like this. Jesus was uh, walking on earth incarnate. And there were mobs of people, like waves of people, trying to reach him, trying to get to him, talk to him, get a piece of him. And I was amongst this crowd. And as I saw all these different people scurrying to try and get to Jesus, I just stood and watched. I watched as different people had connection with him. I just stood in the background. I remember waking up from that dream with a renewed hunger to connect with the Lord. Like it was this deep, deep like desire that, oh my goodness, I'm missing out on something. That dream was important for me. It helped shape my life, legit. It was incredible. Uh, for us as believers, uh, we do know that dreams can at times hold some importance. That God can speak through dreams or use dreams to do something. We look in the narrative of uh, Genesis 41 where Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, has a dream. And he's desperate to see it interpreted. And so he relies on this prisoner named Joseph. 
to interpret this dream for him. And uh, what ensues is an amazing story of Joseph's influence in this nation. We're starting this new series in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, we have a dream. The dream is from the king of Babylon who can't seem to figure it out. The dream nags him. It pokes at him, prods at him, annoys him, bugs him to the point of hysteria. And the king's dream, ultimately, it's about a kingdom. A kingdom that terrifies him. A kingdom that will reduce all other kingdoms to rubble and dust. So, as we go throughout this message, the main idea of this text, Daniel chapter 2, is that the kingdom of God that Jesus will establish is eternal. It is eternal. While the kingdoms of this world are temporary. So, Daniel chapter 2, I know for me, is one of the most gripping stories in the Bible. It's fascinating. It's interesting. There's a lot of different things at play. It's full of drama. And what we're going to do is I'm going to present this to you in kind of the style of the princess bride. So I'm going to read a portion of the text and you're going to stop and you're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Can you explain that a little bit? And I'll go, sure. Let's walk through this. So we're going to go part one, part two, part three, part four. And that's how we're going to do it. So uh, if you could open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, there should be a slide up on the screen as well that will have the text that you can read along. So, starting with verse 1. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know that I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So if you conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind, but tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. 
the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among the people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Okay, we're going to pause there. And before we kind of get going into more of the text, I want to talk a little bit about this exile that Daniel and his friends as Jews find themselves in in Babylon. So the book of Daniel is part of this group of uh, stories and books in the Bible that are exilic literature, meaning they have this account of what it was like for the people of God to live in exile, similar to Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Daniel would have been familiar with some of these writings I just mentioned. Him and his friends would have read these texts, heard them recited. They would have maybe hidden uh, writings under their pillows. He would have drawn from them for inspiration and hope. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, this is 29, this is so beautiful. God calls the Israelites to a way of living, a certain lifestyle while in exile. And this is what it says in verse 5, Jeremiah 29. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. This is a critical, critical message for Daniel and his friends during this time. As they navigate life in exile. And I think as followers of Jesus... Today, we find ourselves in our own unique form of exile. I know all the time we draw these parallels between exilic literature and our own life, our own story as Christians today. Uh, It's no secret that Christian influence is decreasing in our society. It's decreasing in the public sphere. And an orthodox Christian worldview is seen now more than ever, not just as irrelevant to society and culture, but damaging to society and culture. That's the dominant view. There was a survey that was recently put out by the Angus Reid Institute in Canada to a number of Canadians about the state of religion in our country. And most people who responded to this survey concluded this, that Christianity is a net negative for society rather than a net positive. That's just the reality of the culture that we live in. 
That's how people view the faith. Now, typically believers like us respond in three ways when we find ourselves at odds with the culture around us. There's three different ways that we might respond. So, number one's assimilation. Number two is disconnection. And number three is annihilation. So, number one, assimilation. It's this, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. Try and become a carbon copy of the cultural standard around you and see if you can make it work with your faith. We see this all the time. I remember when I was in high school, I even then really noticed that I was at odds, my faith was at odds with the culture around me. So my decision was assimilation. I'm gonna try and be a chameleon here. I'm gonna try and camouflage myself within this society and within this culture so that no one might know that I believe in Jesus and that I follow him. It's a secret. (laughs) Assimilation. Number two, disconnection. Let's build our fences. Let's hide away. Let's remove ourselves from the culture that is so at odds with our faith. I had uh, a few friends who grew up in a denomination in the States that really took this method seriously. They were part of an old order of believers who lived on the East Coast, and uh, they confronted me with this situation. They said, um, our community just allowed us to have cars, and um, it's a big deal because formerly cars weren't allowed in their community because cars were of the world. They were of culture. So uh, my friend drove his brand new car into his home and the leaders of the community confronted him. They said, there's something wrong here. He said, what are you talking about? I, I, I thought we had agreed that cars are now allowed in our community. And they said, no, 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 no. The car has a spoiler on it. That's of the world. We need to take that spoiler off and you know, we're not quite cool with that yet. And he was like, what do I do with this situation? It was tricky. It's a disconnection from culture. And third, annihilation. We fight the culture, tooth and nail, until we feel like we have killed all culture that isn't Christian around us. And then we replace it with our own culture. We fight, we fight, we fight, until we believe we are the dominant culture, then we'll feel like we flourish. In Jeremiah 29, God envisions something totally different for us when it comes to life in exile. It writes, work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Be a blessing, is what it says. Just be a blessing. Plant some roots. Do your best in this place. Honor people. Love people. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city that you live in. It's a, it's a wonderful word for our day. And uh, as Dave walked us through Daniel 1 last week, it was easy to notice how Daniel and his friends really took this seriously. They were... Uh, experts, actually, in the culture around us. And I was 
listening to Tim, Tim Keller, pastor and preacher in New York, comment on this passage, and he talked about how it's actually really uncomfortable for us to recognize that Daniel and his friends, as believers, were experts of Babylonian culture. They learned about this stuff that magicians and enchanters were doing, yet they held fast to the faith. So much so that they were considered wise men according to Babylonian culture. So, because of this position that Daniel holds in Babylonian court, he's roped into this collective effort now to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And religion and superstition in Babylon really emphasized looking for meaning in dreams and visions. And this is something Daniel would have been familiar with as he went through his training. And again, what we really notice and we need to recognize moving forward in this text is that Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most unpredictable people that we could ever hear. Like, he is out of control, vicious towards his, his advisors, so unfair. And he won't even tell them the contents of his dreams. You're probably reading this and going, this guy's delusional. He's saying, tell me my dream. And they're saying, you, you tell me your dream. It's just this weird conversation. Scholars believe this for two reasons. A, because he forgot his dream and he's embarrassed. Or B, he's testing their integrity to see if they're legit. It's a bizarre sequence of events from Nebuchadnezzar. And knowing this is the culture that Daniel is in, we really get to see his courage as we work through the rest of this text. So moving on to Daniel uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, that's Daniel and his friends, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secrets so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Let's pause there once more. Daniel responds, it says, with wisdom and discretion when he is under a massive threat. 
a believer, responding with wisdom and discretion when feeling threatened. Then after Daniel buys time, he goes home to his closest friends, and what does he do? He asks them to pray. In this moment of turmoil, he goes home to his closest friends and allies, and he says, we need to pray. For us, I think it's an important question here is, what does our prayer life look like? Is prayer our first response or our last resort when we're confronted with turmoil? I have learned so much when it comes to prayer from my grandmother. I think she came from maybe a generation or a community that valued prayer in a different way than the community I was raised in. It didn't matter what it was. It literally could be that the, the muffins were burnt or something. Prayer was gonna be the first response. Not the last resort in any case. We see with Daniel, even though it is a dire situation, there's, there's obviously some sort of rhythm here of prayer and community prayer with his friends that we can learn from. Do you have people in your life that you legitimately pray with? Is prayer just a personal thing for you? Or is there, are there people in your life that you pray with? It's something for us to consider. The four friends, they pleaded to God that he would reveal the mystery to them. The only way these guys are going to get out of this is if God shows up. And he does. In a big way. But before rushing to the king with this interpretation and the mystery revealed to him, he pauses and he praises God. He shows this glory and honor to God. And if you're reading this in, in your Bible, I don't know if it's in um, kind of this poetic format, but it should be because that's what it is. It's a, it's a poem that Daniel recites prayerfully. Daniel praises God for his power first and foremost. He says God is the one who uh, can remove kings and set up other kings. That's really interesting. And second, he praises God for his wisdom that he alone reveals deep and hidden things. Confident in the God that he serves, then Daniel goes and approaches Nebuchadnezzar. So let's move on and continue reading in this text starting at verse 24. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of this dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of this dream. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, 
and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after you comes to an end another kingdom. After your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. And after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness. It will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and the meaning is certain. Okay, let's pump the brakes. That was a lot. I don't know if you came to church this morning expecting that. So, once Arioch brought Daniel into the king's presence, 
Daniel immediately places, this is really important, he immediately places the spotlight where it belongs, on God. He makes it no secret that God is the one behind all of this. He says, uh, God's power is to reveal hidden things, something that the king clearly values. The interpretation of some of these hidden things. He wants to know the secrets. Uh, How tempting would it have been for Daniel, and if we can imagine ourselves in Daniel's position, coming up to the king, knowing that if we interpret this dream, we're going to get all the honor and privilege that the king can bestow on us. How tempting would it have been for Daniel to toot his own horn, to say that he's the wise guy, that he's the one who interpreted this dream. It would have been so beneficial to him. We get into so much trouble as believers when we fail to give credit where credit is due. I know this is really prevalent, at least from what I see in our society today. There's a lot of people who claim they're the one with the secrets. They have the hidden intel. They know what's going on. You might even see this online. It's like this person's got the secret to getting in shape. This person's got the secret to a great sex life. This person's got the secret to a great marriage. This person's got the secret to removing all your debt as fast as possible. Everybody's got a secret. This person's got the secret from growing their church from 100 people to 1,000 people. It's a huge value in our culture, and it's how people can kind of get leverage over others. As they say, I've got, I've got the secret. And we all flock to that person who has the secret. I love, I love how Daniel doesn't sell himself in this moment. It shows his integrity. He said, God reveals the secrets. So, the dream, this bizarre dream. There are two characters in this dream. First character is the statue. Second character is the rock. So, this colossal statue, it's constructed by human means. So, it's got a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, a belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet, uh, a mixture of iron and baked clay. That's the statue. The rock, it's carved out of a mountain. And very specifically, we see it's mentioned that it's carved out of the mountain, but not by human hands. The rock smashes into the feet of the statue right at its foundation, which happens to be the weakest part of the statue. That's where the rock crumbles the statue. The statue is reduced The statue is reduced to dust and it's blown away by the wind. Then the rock becomes a huge mountain that covers the whole world. So traditionally, the focus of the dream 
as we read this has been on the interpretation of the different parts of the statue. We all want to know what these different parts mean, who they represent. And so historically, most scholars have concluded that these are the parallels. So the head of gold would be the, the Babylonian empire. The arms and the chest of silver, the uh, Persian empire. Belly, thighs of bronze, the Greek empire, and the legs of iron, the feet of clay and iron would be the Romans. So there's, there's just so much debate and confusion around these different parts of the statue and who they represent. And scholars disagree. They say, no, I think this, this meant that part, and this is how we can kind of line it up historically with timelines. And it's just a lot of talk about these parts. Maybe as we sit here as well, we hear this dream, we find it perplexing and distracting as well. So what's crucial for us to understand is that the dream that Daniel interprets is far more sweeping and universal and general than really we try and make it out to be. Ultimately, it's not about the kingdoms represented in the different parts of the statue. That's not the point. I really don't want us to come away with that going to Google, you know, what the different parts mean. That's not the point. It's not about the kingdoms that make up the statue. It's about the kingdom represented by the rock. That's the main character. And as the kingdoms of this world become increasingly frail, all the way down to the foundation, they become weak. The kingdom of God overcomes the worldly kingdoms at the point of greatest weakness. The rock doesn't shine or glitter like the statue does. It's not as impressive optically. It's not gold, it's not silver, but it's lasting. It's eternal. It's God's kingdom. Amen? Okay, last part. Verse 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. So let's, let's conclude Daniel 2 here. Are you with me? King falls to his knees. This part actually gave me chills when I read it for the first time. This is the most powerful man in the whole world. A tyrant. Vicious. Yet before the God of heaven and earth, he falls to his knees. 
before an exiled Jewish man, he falls to his knees. Overwhelmed that there was finally some resolution to his stress. Daniel was really diligent in making sure that the spotlight wasn't on him in this moment. Daniel was really diligent before on making sure the focus was on God. So Nebuchadnezzar, we, we might be mistaken, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't praising Daniel in this moment. He was praising the power behind Daniel. That Daniel so clearly focused on. And because Daniel's in such great standing with the king, he raises him up, proceeds to make him chief of all the wise men. And then in so Daniel gets to promote his friends. It's a profound scene in the story. It's an amazing ending to this chapter and the narrative that we see, and that's the end. Flash forward a few hundred years from that point. And after Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, a few other kingdoms have come and gone. They've done their thing, made their mark. And there's this rumor going around that there's this Jesus of Nazareth who talks about a rock. You can imagine what this might do for those who have this dream from Daniel fresh in their imagination. What kind of buzz there might be around that there's a rabbi and a carpenter talking about a kingdom that might come. Jesus says this, the stone or the rock that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The small rock that smashes the statue has now become a mountain. Jesus, mocked and rejected by the people, will establish his kingdom over all other kingdoms. And so for so long, Daniel, had, Daniel 2 has been misinterpreted as this call to take arms against the kingdoms of the world. Let's smash them like the rock did, and let's represent God in this revolt, in this effort. According to Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, this chapter actually inspired so many revolts against empires, freedom fighters against Rome, the Maccabees against the powers at play, all in an effort to play the part of the rock. To smash the kingdoms of this world and try to establish the kingdom of God. But how did Jesus see the kingdom of God being established over the kingdoms of the world? How did Jesus see this playing out? Did he launch a violent revolt against Rome? Did he get together his freedom fighters and take up their swords and attack the powers that be? No. Jesus destroyed the kingdoms of this world by letting the kingdoms of this world destroy him. 
and in so exposing the frailty and the weakness and the fraudulent nature of the kingdoms of this world and establishing his kingdom that continues to grow more powerful than ever. Through that, the kingdoms of this world are exposed. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, they're existing on borrowed time, still today. Jesus is coming back. That's what we believe at the core of our faith. And he's not coming back to die again. He's coming back to see this mountain cover the whole world, to see his kingdom established on earth as it is in heaven. This kingdom of love, of justice, of peace, established forever and ever. Amen? It's good news. And so, as we take the bread and the cup in just a minute, we need to be reminded that it's through dying that a humble Jesus took his throne, wore his crown, put on his robe, and through that, empires crumbled to the ground. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kingdom. This rock that will become a mountain, established forever and ever, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of inclusivity, acceptance, a kingdom of peace and joy. It's good news. So as we take the bread and the cup, would we be reminded that it's through your death that your kingdom was truly advanced and through your resurrection that we have hope of it forever being established. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.